Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. In uh, one of my talks, I'm not sure if it was last one or the one before, I um, quoted the Buddha uh, with this line. He says in uh, in the Sutta, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind. That gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. The gladness connected with the wholesome and its importance in practice, which includes happiness, joy, spaciousness, a light heart. This is a very important aspect of practice that sometimes goes unnoticed. We hear about suffering and the end of suffering. And sometimes there's so much emphasis on suffering and its end that somehow happiness doesn't get a whole lot of airtime. But the Buddha talked a lot about happiness. That's, he was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness. He said, if you go for the highest happiness, all the other ones will come along. And he didn't say, don't let yourself feel those other ones. In fact, he recommended to feel the wholesome and feel the happiness that comes along the way in practice as an aid to practice and as a a way to create a spaciousness that can open up to suffering when we see it, all the confusions and fears when we see it. But sometimes we can um, miss that point. And I want to share tonight partly my own misunderstandings and confusions around this and why I've become, um, in recent years, a student of happiness. Uh, Sally was talking in, uh, uh, in her talk about the four right efforts. And I also just want to underscore this one side of right effort. If you recall, she said, she talked about the unwholesome, guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen, and abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen, And then there's the positive side, developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen and maintaining or increasing wholesome states that have arisen, that are here. This is right effort to maintain and increase wholesome states when they arise and develop them when they're not here. The tricky part is, as with anything, 
the more you want something, the more you grasp after it, the more you have it as a goal and are there with hope and expectation, all you're doing is cultivating wanting and attachment. And so you've just landed in an unwholesome state that causes suffering. It's a very tricky, delicate dance here. <clears throat> the Dalai Lama, in his, uh, in his book, The Art of Happiness, starts out the book, the first line in the book, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's not a bad purpose if you're going to have some kind of goal. The purpose of life is to be happy. And if you think about it, the more you can cultivate and uh, embody happiness in your own being, in your own life, the more there is happiness in the world and it spreads. It's contagious. You know that feeling when you're around somebody who is simply themselves and content and well-being and sees that in you. It's nice hanging around with a person like that. That's why people love hanging around with the Dalai Lama. He's a happy guy. And there he is when you're around him saying, oh, you are a Buddha too. And you start feeling like that. <clears throat> so um, first I'll talk a little bit about my own journey. <clears throat> I came to Buddhism from uh, the bhakti path the path of devotion. I think I mentioned uh, Be Here Now, Ram Das was a very key figure and reading Be Here Now changed my life. And Maharaji, the uh, Indian uh, guru on the blanket, somehow when I saw pictures of him and read the, his energy, felt his energy through uh, through Ram Dass's words, it resonated with me and awakened, reminded me of something that is, is deep within me. The fact that I love life and have a real uh, um, natural celebratory bent. I'm a greed type, in case you haven't noticed. And uh, greed types on the one hand, say, I want more and can create suffering, or on the other can say, ah, there's so much beauty and joy and love. So they each have their, their positives and you know, the idea is to see how much you can go through your own confusion to express the, the gifts of, of that type. Anyway, I was a, a bhakti, a bhakta, and um, and then when I heard the Buddha Dharma, there was um, a place of clarity and resonance that um, that took me even deeper, and that I knew that I had found my path. And those those first months and years where I was in what's called the honeymoon phase, where I was just so grateful to find a practice and find a teacher that inspired me 
to see the possibility of getting beyond my neurotic thought patterns. I had never thought that was possible before. But I saw this is possible. And so I just really um, went for it. <clears throat> but going home to, uh, to New York from Boulder, Colorado, where uh, I first uh, heard the Dharma at Naropa Institute, and hibernating in my, in my uh, apartment in New York, sometimes it could get a little dry. And so I, I would sit religiously um, and uh, was very devoted to the practice, but found that I was missing some of the juice that I that I had gotten when I would think about Maharaji. And then actually there was a a class that Ram Das was starting in, in New York and I went to uh to Joseph and uh and oh Joseph actually told me about the class. He said, Well you know I know that you like that uh that kind of stuff and uh, Ram Das is giving a class. So I went to Ram Das and uh, saw whether it would work for me to be in the class, and he knew very well about uh, uh, that I was a, a, a Buddhist, so to speak. And he said, "Well, if you do this, if you come to this class, you have to uh, give up everything, including your meditation." And I thought, "My God, it's the one thing I believe in." So I went to Joseph, and he said, "He's telling me I, I have to stop meditating." And, you know, what should I do? And Joseph said, what is he going to do? Tell you not to be aware? And he said, just go ahead, do it. It's okay. <laughs> and I did that class. And, uh, and actually, by the way, when I, after, after a couple of weeks, I, I called Ram Dass up because you're supposed to be meditating every, every day. But I didn't know what I was supposed to do because I wasn't supposed to do what I'd always done. And uh, I said, you know, what, what should I do here? And, um, and it was a pause on the phone. And he said, let's see. He said, why don't you do Vipassana? <laughs> I said, Vipassana? What? But you said, I, he said, it's a great practice. You see things clearly. You're just here, connected with the, with the moment. And then he started laughing. Yeah. And I... It was a very valuable lesson because I had been so attached to this as my savior, salvation that I had to be willing even to give that up if I really wanted to be free. And then I did Vipassana. But I would go back and forth for um, the whole time I was in that, uh, in that scene saying, what's my path? Is it devotional? Is it... Buddhist, because the Buddhism, the, the, the practice, Buddha Dharma, seems so clean and so pure, but sometimes it could get dry. And the, the devotional stuff, shring, singing Sri Ram, J Ram, and all, sometimes it seemed a little sloppy to me. You know, just, oh, Sri Ram, J Ram, where's the scene clearly? And I went back and forth saying, what, what, what is it? And, and he kept on saying, don't worry about choosing your path. Your path will choose you. And at some point after that, that time, I realized, well, this is my practice. This is my path. This is what really 
aligns me with the truth and I have this spirit that I need to honor as part of my practice. That worked for a while, but um, I got into some blind alleys. And actually, one of my first, I should, should backtrack and uh, remember when I first got into the, the Buddhist uh, practice, when I first met Joseph, there was this one day when I was uh, sitting in the class in uh, Essential Buddhism on, uh, in Naropa, and I had on my New York Knicks uh, T-shirt. I was a, I am a big sports fan, as I, I think I mentioned, and I was a season ticket holder to the to the Knicks. Right, some of my most intense hot peak experiences were in Madison Square Garden up to that point. <laughs> Probably still, you know, some of them. And I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, uh, what about? loving sports? What about really letting myself go? And I, I went up to Joseph after the, after the meditation and after the class was over and I said, look, um, I'm, I'm a big sports fan and I go to the games a lot. Am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and just say, nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good shot. <laughs> I said, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> he said, don't worry about it. You'll still feel what you feel. You'll just be a little bit more balanced. You know? And it's true. I still feel what I feel. And when my team is playing, you can tell by the down the block who's winning or, or not. But I just really needed to honor that, that passion in me. Well, as I, at one point, as I got into practice um, in a very intensive way and in a style that, um, that was very inspirational to me, um, I started to narrow my understanding of what Buddha Dharma was about. And I took to heart certain aspects of the teaching that became a very narrow focus of, um, of practice. There is one, um, one teaching uh, on a word that's a valued word called samvega. And this is the, the definition of samvega. The oppressive sense of shock dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. This is actually a very important and essential understanding at some point to grasp that being lost in wanting, life as it's normally lived, being lost in grasping and thinking that's where happiness lies, is just more and more suffering. 
but it's a short step from that profound understanding to thinking that life is meaningless and that we have to get out and not let ourselves enjoy it, which is what my mind got confused by. And so I started to somehow understand the end of suffering with the end of living and with not really letting myself be who I was. And that was very painful. There's another teaching that can also um, confuse the word nibida, which is also a valued and important understanding. This is one um, definition or one uh, um, expression of nibida. One should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. These are translations. Here's another translation. When a practitioner is practicing in accordance with the Dharma, he should dwell engrossed in the revulsion towards the aggregates. Another, another interpretation or another translation, when one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the aggregates. Now, if you think that you're supposed to be utterly disgusted and revolted by this body and mind, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for celebration. But a deeper meaning is that one of disenchantment, which even then can be misunderstood. But the deeper meaning of disenchantment is to break the spell of enchantment. To not be enchanted by that which usually enthralls us. To see through that But disenchantment doesn't mean to, I think, become disgusted with life. And so that confusion is not unique to me, but it was quite painful trying to sort out how committed I was to practice when I have a natural inclination to to appreciate and enjoy and celebrate life. I have a friend <clears throat> I mentioned before, <clears throat> uh, one of the co-authors of uh, that book on happiness, How We Choose to Be Happy, my friend Rick. <clears throat> um, he goes on uh, radio a lot, you know, just um, talking about happiness. And he said to me, and he, when he's on call-in radio, you know, people give... Uh, call in to ask questions about his his research. And uh, he has more than once gotten calls that start out, um, I'm a Buddhist, and he knows what's going to come next often. And And the person says in one way or another, I'm 
suspicious about all this talk about happiness. You know, what about suffering in life? If you're suspicious about happiness, take a look and see what kind of understandings you hold. If you're suspicious about allowing joy and allowing gladness and allowing your heart to be singing, take a look at what beliefs there might be underneath there. Because joy is a prerequisite to enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. (laughs) Joy is one of the Brahma-viharas, not suffering. But we can get confused and misled. Here's a, a quote that I love from Ajahn Sumedho around this. He says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So it took a little while to reclaim my natural way of being and see this was not taking me away from the path. I kind of felt it was un-Buddhist for a while. And and actually the, the Buddha in my own mind got twisted and turned into this kind of stern taskmaster that said, beware, don't have fun. And what had been such an inspirational archetype and, and being became a source of contraction. And this, I went in, was in this period for some time until I woke up. And actually, I want to um, acknowledge and give credit to um, one of my teachers, Punjaji, also known as Papaji, who I... I went to visit in India, and um, who just embodied laughter and wisdom and profound silence and stillness, and um, and he had clearly arrived at something. But there was such a, a, a sparkle and radiance about him, and I remembered asking him as I was more and more feeling my heart and opening and feeling the love inside, 
I said to him one day, I said, you know, I want to ask about something. When, when Buddhists talk about emptiness, there's usually this seriousness and solemnity, like a holy word that one gets very, that often gets very still and somber about. At least this is my, this was my understanding. I've since seen quite the opposite. But when Buddhists talk about opening, it often seems to have a kind of um, somberness. But when you talk about emptiness, there's all this light and love and space. And I said, what goes on? Is it, it's the same emptiness. How, why is it so much more fun when you, when you talk about it? And, uh, and he said, well, often, um, he understood the question. He said, often when we find that place of emptiness in the stillness, we can easily think that the stillness is where we need to go for that emptiness. And that the appearances and the play of, of life is antithetical to that. And so there's a, a dualism that sometimes people misunderstand in thinking, oh, emptiness is only about stillness. He says, my emptiness, everything is included. Suffering, happiness, calm, joy, love, everything is included in my emptiness. And it was a very um, powerful moment for me to realize how narrow I had defined and misunderstood the teachings because that made me want to come back and just see what I'd been missing. And what I had been missing was the whole array of expressions of emptiness within Buddha Dharma, within Theravadan Buddhism, as Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Chah and, and others in the Thai forest tradition so beautifully express it. If you've ever been around Sumedho, he just it's he's got such a sense of humor. And Ajahn Amaro, if you know Ajahn Amaro, he's just as as uh, as Guy had, had mentioned, you know, very strict on the outside but light and loose on the inside. And then, of course, there's the whole um, other schools and traditions of, of Buddha Dharma, the Tibetan practices and, and, uh, and Mahayana practices. It's in all of them, but somehow I had narrowly focused and misunderstood. And then I came back to the Buddha Dharma and, and wanted to discover the celebration in there or the, the joy and the the open-heartedness that's there, that can be found. So I particularly became um, a student of happiness in uh, these last few years. Um, And as I, um, one reason was uh, when I was given this book, How How We Choose to Be Happy, it was a, a few years ago, it just resonated so with me. It was, yes, everything that they were saying Especially all the different choices had their correlation in Buddha Dharma. So I decided to, um, to do a series in my, um, my Berkeley group, uh, meets on Thursday nights, 
on this book, seeing it through Buddha Dharma. And over the course of about three months, we looked at these different um, attitudes and, pra- and practiced them. And what was quite extraordinary was as we all practiced and focused together on these qualities and on developing happiness, we all got happier and happier and happier. I thought, this is very cool. I haven't been this happy in a long time. So I became convinced that, like anything, we can cultivate intentionally happiness and joy. And it supports our practice. In the last few years I've been looking at this topic a lot and uh, in this, uh, this last year actually I, um, I decided I had kind of missed that, that feeling of, um, of cultivating and practicing together that I did in my, my Berkeley group so I started, to, I started a couple of joy groups awakening to joy groups <clears throat> for my own benefit and research as much as anyone else's and uh, there were about 40 people or so that uh, for about six months we explored it. And looking at all the different ways that Buddha Dharma opens us up to joy. Because it is a path for joy and to joy. And uh, it was really, again, um, confirming and affirming, as the Buddha said, what the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon that becomes the inclination of mind. And we were all just inclining the mind towards joy. It's a tricky kind of a thing, though, because, again, it's so easy to get into a grasping or feeling you're not measuring up. So what, what I saw over the, the time was that you have to keep on noticing your relationship to what it is you're inclining towards. And particularly the word joy is a very loaded one. For some, it's such an inspiration. And for some, it seems just completely out of reach. And one of the, <clears throat> one of the things that I came to understand is that there's many different expressions of joy and happiness. And one of the, the neat things about uh, doing this research is I'd interview uh, friends and, and people, besides the people in the group, uh, people who I, I love and, and respect and say, well, what, what is joy to you? And there's many different flavors of joy. Some people, yeah, some of the, this is from some of the classes, um, effortlessness, lightness freedom, an open and trusting heart, um, full and flowing over, a reckless abandon for, some, for someone else, a deep sense of peace, a quietness that, that is complete and full, aliveness, many, many different ways that can be expressed. And so to see what our own nature is and, um, and honor that 
And for me, what it kept on coming down to as I went through all of these, these months was really a sense of aliveness. Aliveness and connection that allows our own unique expression. I, um, a- another book that, I, uh, that I've been hanging out with is a, a beautiful uh, book called Authentic Happiness. Uh, by Martin Seligman, who is the author of Learned Optimism as well. It's a great book. And um, as he says, there's, there's different ways to express your happiness and joy. And he would give people um, uh, surveys and he would ask, ask people to remember one, one of two things either something that happened that made you feel so happy you just wanted to jump up and down, or something that made you so happy that you just wanted to sit and smile. Not to get lost in some kind of image of what joy or happiness looks like. We all come into the world with that capacity. You see a baby with delight. We all have that innate capacity. And I think that the key is sometimes we get stuck on other habits and we've, we've forgotten that, that that channel is available to us. And I think of it in these groups that I did as changing the default setting little by little, inclining the mind to just know that there's another possibility is tremendously important and then more and more you have that available. Let's see, let's see if I can find it. Some of the some of the things that uh, some people said doing this I have an increased aware awareness of joyfulness and the possibility of cultivating it. I also understand better how to experience it rather than the old random way of simply being surprised or even worse, unaware of its presence. I now practice choosing to see joy inherent in many situations rather than the negative or painful aspects. We just incline our mind. We can, we'll find whatever we look for. Here's one person's uh, anecdote. He said, I had one experience that was pretty illuminating. This is a quite naturally aversive person. Actually, the group had loads of aversives who were looking for a little joy. A lot of aversives. That was neat, too, for me to see. I've had one experience that was pretty illuminating. As I was driving into the city and there was, there was, traffic, uh, there was traffic, I tend to get really frustrated and contracted where there, when there's traffic. My mind starts thinking about a lot of things in our society and I get on a roll. And I stopped and said to myself, now wait a minute, is there any joy here? And I realized that I just switched the channels as I said that. I looked out and I saw the water. He was driving across the Bay Bridge. And I looked up and it was a clear day. And I opened my sunroof and I said, you know, it's not so bad. And I realized, I just noticed there was a switch that I'm starting to nurture that I didn't realize was there before. 
the uh, the guy who I can I didn't know how long I, I would go on. This might be a two part talk because I've got lots more to say. So um, <laughs> lots more. This is the preamble. So um, I'll just go as far as I go. The uh, the guy who um, who wrote this book, the way he got into it was uh, I can find it was his daughter. Um, woke him up to his predicament. I hope I can find it here. Let's see. Where is it? Ah, here it is. <clears throat> this he is, by the way, now known as the father of positive psychology. Right? And it's there's this whole movement that's quite. It's actually, he's, he was the president of the American uh, Psychological Association. He's one of the most respected psychologists. Uh, and he'd been studying mental illness for 30 years. And then as he started to see the possibilities, he started to switch to mental health. What a radical idea. Uh, um, I was... Weeding in the garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki, I have to confess that even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm actually not very good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing and singing. (laughs) Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her, And she walked away. Within a few minutes, she was back saying, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? From when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. (laughs) This was an epiphany for me, Seligman says. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul, and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change." And then he became the father of positive psychology. (laughs) We can incline the mind anywhere. It's all about habits. And we have to be very, very patient with ourselves because habits die hard. That's what we're doing here right now. We are cultivating the habit of seeing the truth with courage, with openness, with friendliness, 
And in that being willing to again and again see what's true with an open heart, we purify all of that confusion. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. So it takes great patience, great compassion, and a deep commitment. <clears throat> when we can open ourselves up to gladness, or happiness, or joy, or aliveness, or well-being, whatever word works for you, and I would really encourage you as go through this to use whatever word works for you, well-being, contentment, happiness, and if joy works, fine, but don't get stuck on that word. As we can open ourselves up to well-being and let ourselves be touched and delighted by life, it inspires us, just as the Buddha said, that gladness connected with the wholesome states inspires, it delights, it opens the heart. It brings about a vitality, an energy to practice. It dispels confusion and fear. And it connects us with life. It also, as I said, gives us a spaciousness within which we can meet our deepest pains. So it's not cheating. It's actually very skillful. That's what the Buddha said. <clears throat> so I want to, um, in the remaining time, talk a little bit, talk some about different aspects of cultivating joy in our practice. First, I want to say that um, embracing dukkha, that not running away from it, is one of the most essential pieces to opening our hearts to joy. Because until we do, we're running away from the truth. And we're running away, there's that contraction that just keeps us disconnected from, from reality. That's why I think the Buddha started by his teaching by saying, yeah, there is suffering in life. You remember when you first heard that? It might have been a, a sense of, oh, wow, finally someone is telling it like it is. Sometimes people hear that and they think, what a depressing way to start a teaching. But as the Buddha said, he teaches about suffering and the end of suffering. And in order to come to the end of suffering, one has to truly understand suffering and open up to it and not be afraid of it. And when we can do that, there's a kind of um, vulnerability a beautiful vulnerability, an honesty, an authenticity that connects us with our aliveness. Joseph says, he has this uh, beautiful line, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. When we don't see 
our suffering and how it's created. That is suffering. But to start to see it, there's a possibility of real opening and freedom. You can't just say, well, I want the compassion stuff. Give me the the happiness. Give me the wisdom. Keep that other stuff down there. We don't want that. It's not how it works. If you want it all, you have to open up to the whole show, and what usually comes out first is all the stuff that we're afraid to look at. Our fears, our wantings, our pettiness, our judgment, our self-judgment, our anger, all of that. Say, ooh, wow. But actually, if you're willing to open up to it all, what is underneath and what is holding it in that much deeper place of wisdom is connection, aliveness, understanding, compassion. So when you touch your own fears, it actually is drawing out of you a strength and a courage that you didn't even know was there. It draws out of you a compassion that you might not have even realized you had a capacity for. It demands for you to get in touch with a wisdom that can somehow not be overwhelmed and see, oh, this is so. This is workable. How can I come to understand this in a way that keeps me connected with life? And there is a a teaching, one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha, called uh, Transcendental Dependent Arising, if you want to impress your friends with a a, a cool name for a list. And it's, it's a list of qualities that lead to awakening, starting with suffering. It takes the wheel of dependent origination, which ends in old age, sickness, and death, and collects them all in the category of suffering. And he says, from suffering, a deep understanding of suffering, when it's held with wisdom, when there's a a practice and a, a, a teaching that can hold suffering, instead of it leading to bitterness or fear or sorrow or contraction, that when we truly understand suffering, it leads to faith. And I think everybody in this room has touched faith by opening up to their suffering. Because sometime you get to a point where you just say, I give up. You know that feeling, I give up. I can't do this. Well, when you say, I give up, this is a very profound statement. Because the I, the ego, is surrendering into something much deeper than what we can hold with our analytical figuring out mind. Especially the mind that says, why is this happening? And you realize that 
through that suffering comes a depth of compassion, as I'm sure you've seen here, and a connection with all of life, and a quality of opening up to something beyond yourself. Suffering is a causative factor for faith. Faith in this chain leads to gladness. Gladness leads to joy. Joy, including the depth of concentration that can come from, um, from a focused mind that, li- that, that opens up to deep feelings of bliss and rapture, can lead to contentment, can lead to peace, equanimity, and finally, the f- and disenchantment, all these other things, and finally, awakening. But it's very important to see that the Buddha said, suffering leads to faith, leads to gladness, leads to joy. So embracing dukkha is not antithetical, but actually the way, one way, one of many ways, and I want to emphasize one of many ways, to open up to joy. Uh, and along these lines, I've just remembered to reconcile the conundrum of broken or unbroken. <laughs> I have a poem which it's not by me, but a beautiful poem that um, puts this together. This is by um, a, a woman named Rashani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken. A shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges Cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So they're both true. You're broken and you're unbroken. You're whole underneath that brokenness. And what we're doing here, being willing to open up to everything, is a direct avenue to see that wholeness inside. In the time left, I think I'll just start on this this list of other ways to open up to joy and maybe give you something to... uh, work with, play with in your, uh, in your practice. 
one key element, I think, is just as the Buddha said, to increase wholesome states that have arisen. How could we do that? What's the best way to increase wholesome states that have arisen? Is it grasping for more? Oh, I hope it doesn't go away. I don't think so. Is it trying to bargain or manipulate? Not so. What's the most effective way that comes to mind to increase wholesome states that are here? Right on. That's usually the answer for most anything you, do, you get in one of these talks. That's the way. To pay attention. Don't think it's just a, a fluke. Oh, okay, well, I got, got lucky. I got happy that time. Pay attention. When you are feeling calm, instead of thinking, oh, okay, well... What should I pay attention to here? Calm is happening. Pay attention to calm. Not, oh, I better not get into this because then I'll get attached. Let yourself feel calm. If you're feeling love, pay attention. Let yourself feel it fully. Have your radar open to it. Not that you need to go for it and look for it, but when it's here, don't miss it. When you are feeling clear, let yourself delight in clarity. Because appreciation is not grasping. There is a difference between grasping, which is wanting to hold on to that which is changing, or uh, wanting to create something that was there yesterday, and simply being with what's here, what's here right now. I've seen this so many times where people get, feel that they're kind of um, doing something wrong because they, they enjoy their delight, they enjoy their, their bliss. Oh no, I shouldn't be doing that. You know, this is about opening to suffering. No, that's just part of the show. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, Suffering is not enough. There's the 10,000 joys as well as the 10,000 sorrows. Start paying attention to the 10,000 joys when they're here, just as you would the 10,000 sorrows. When you are feeling gratitude, which often comes in practice, for the blessings that we have, Let yourself enjoy, delight in that gratitude. Thich Nhat Hanh has this this, um, practice, seeing what's not wrong. We're so used to noticing what's wrong. He says, try seeing what's not wrong. He says, last week you might have had a toothache and you go to the dentist. Oh, my tooth is hurting so much. This week, oh, no toothache. Isn't that nice? Well, you can also see what's right as well. And I I think of mindfulness as appreciation practice. 
It's like you're appreciating this moment, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, you're appreciating this moment for what it is. That's what we're doing in every moment. Oh, what's here? When you take refuge in the Dharma, you're taking refuge and seeing, oh, this is a gift from life. This is just what I need to wake up. Can you appreciate that? And can you appreciate when there's something very delightful and wholesome in your heart? Don't miss it. Don't grasp onto it, but don't miss it. Hmm. I'll just move on to uh, a, um, an, an akin um, quality to appreciation that I'll end the talk with. And that is, uh, that is gratitude. Gratitude is, it, it's just so amazing how as we open ourselves up and doing this process more and more, we feel gratitude for life, for awareness, for our good karma, for our fortune. This is a very wholesome thing to reflect on. How extraordinary We said this at the beginning of the retreat, how extraordinary our karma is for all of us being interested and having the opportunity and having the circumstances to practice with the deepest sincerity waking up, opening our hearts. Amazing karma. What very refined, this is like, you know, close to you know, the Deva realms, really, even when your, your butt is hurting on the cushion, that you have this blessing and uh, that this wanting, this yearning to wake up. So I think I'll, I'll end with um, one um, teaching that you can hold uh, in your practice on the Buddha's discourse on blessings. And let that be a kind of source of, of gratitude for, for you, as you'll see. And uh, as you practice these next few days, especially now as we're doing mudita and, uh, and joy, sympathetic joy, which is for everyone around, you might think of everybody getting in touch with their own gratitude, and there's so much happiness around that you can feel that for yourself as well. Mm. At one time, the Buddha was living in the Jetta Grove, and a certain deity of astounding beauty approached him and said, Many deities and humans have pondered on blessings. Tell me the blessings supreme. The Buddha replied, To associate not with the foolish, to be with the wise, to honor the worthy ones, This is a blessing supreme. To reside in a suitable location. To have good past deeds done. To set oneself in the right direction. This is a blessing supreme. To be well-spoken, highly trained, well-educated, skilled in handicraft, highly disciplined, This is a blessing supreme. To be well caring of mother, of father, to look after spouse and children, 
to engage in a harmless occupation, this is a blessing supreme. Outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all and selfless giving, this is a blessing supreme. To cease and abstain from causing suffering, to avoid harm through intoxicants, to be diligent in virtuous practices, this is a blessing supreme. To be reverent and humble, content and grateful, to hear the Dharma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To be patient and respectful, to visit with spiritual people, to discuss the Dharma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To live simply and purely, to see the noble truths, and to realize nirvana, this is the blessing supreme. A mind unshaken when touched by the worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the blessing supreme. Those who have fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible. They find well-being everywhere. Theirs is the blessing supreme. Pretty blessed, huh? Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 20, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.